Hey folks, so first and foremost, this episode ran very long. So what we decided to do was to chop a couple stories off and we're going to be releasing them on Patreon. Uh, The first is uh, Cole's story about John Womack, which is a very interesting abduction case. It's it's so strange. I really think y'all are going to enjoy it. The second one is uh, my story. I was going to tell the story of Harry Joe Turner. Uh, But uh, we decided to save it for Patreon. And in this particular Patreon bonus episode, you're going to get a bunch of different stories. Uh, And there's a John Mack article in there that's interesting that I I think you all enjoy. So uh, this these Patreon bonus episodes are coming out uh, on the same day that the uh, regular episode hits the main feed, which is Monday. So I hope you all subscribe to the Patreon for that. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by Cole Harold. Uh, if you don't know Cole, he's a researcher with the New World Explorers Society. He's written a ton of articles about a lot of weird cases. And man, it's an honor to have you on, finally. You know, it's, it, it's, oh, yeah. it, it's honestly a long time coming. Oh, well, thank you so much. Like I said, it's it's seriously, I can't even believe I'm really even on right now. This is <laughs> Uh, I've been a huge fan of the show for a very long time. So I, <laughs> this is a dream come true. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, man. Uh, thank you. And, um, today we're talking about obs- kind of obscured seventies abduction cases because, um, uh, abductions in the, in the 1970s are characterized by cases that gain a level of popularity uh, on their individual merits. So uh, the Pascagoula abduction, for instance, was just kind of this media sensation. It occurred during this huge UFO flap that was going on at the time, the UFO humanoid flap. Uh, and it's also the first year that there were a handful of abduction cases and there were uh, the vast majority of them were like, they occurred within like 14 days within a two week span of each other. And like, I think it was like something, uh, there was about eight abductions that year and six of them were in October. So it's a, it, it starts to become a little more prominent in 73, but it, it really doesn't catch on like it does. But in 1974, the Carl Higdon abduction, um, you know, captured some national headlines. Um, but one year later, the one that really um, got people was the Travis Walton abduction. Mm-hmm. And primarily because it wasn't an abduction, first and foremost, it was treated as a missing persons murder case before it became the alien abduction that we know about. And in 1975, there were 25 abduction cases reported, you know, and it was setting a new world, a record for, you know, the most reported abductions of that year. 
And aside from you know the publicity of the Walton case, it's you know believed that the premiere of the UFO incident starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons depicting the Betty and Barney Hill abduction brought forth you know a lot more experiencers, including uh, Patty Roach, um, which I can't remember if that's her real name or what, but. Yeah. Um, and her uh, family's abduction, it brought forth Brian Scott, who had had, it was kind of like the first person to have multiple abductions written about in the 1970s that I can think of. But um, yeah, the 70s are just, these cases come to the forefront and they're very strange, a lot of them. Uh, some of them have like the hallmarks of your traditional abduction cases while uh, others really have, you know, such strange features like the Lee Parrish abduction, the abduction mm-hmm. of the Stanford three. Uh, and, you know, all of these cases we've pretty much covered on our strange skies at this point. So it only made sense for the 70s to start pulling from the obscurest of the obscure, the stories that you may never have heard of before. There's going to be plenty that you haven't. Mm-hmm. We've each we've each got five with us. So yeah. uh Cole, why don't you kick us off with the first one? Okay, so the very first case that I came across um, is the abduction of Jack Davey. Um, That one occurred on June 1970, and uh, basically uh, Jack Davey was um, in his mid-20s. He was riding his motorcycle out near Oberon, Australia, and... uh, it was about it was about ten o'clock in the morning um, when he was on his way to the uh, Canangra Walls um, when suddenly he noticed a uh, silvery glow which lit up the road in, in front of him. Uh, he was unable to uh, stop before he uh, was managed to drive straight into this bright glow. Um, and upon doing so, he was suddenly lifted up and floated towards a large circular object. Uh, once inside, he found himself, um, in a glowing light blue room. Um, this room was flat. Uh, it was hexagonal shaped. Um, it had a dome ceiling. It was about 50 feet across. Um, some 12 feet high and um, Jack was obviously terrified by this um, when he felt a voice telling him that everything is well. And upon hearing this, he began to relax. Um, And suddenly uh, he noticed that one of the walls opened up and a being similar to a human uh, began to, exit with two others of the similar type and they were bright blue in color they were not wearing any clothes because he noticed genitalia that was similar to ours they made a very specific note (laughs) of that um and that they were about six feet in height um the they basically uh they had similar looking teeth to us but they had a, a small mouth as well um they had uh, also noses like us um so they were they were very similar to us in in most respects 
However, their eyes, um, he made a big point of noticing um, that they were almost like a deep, like a doe's eyes. So big and full um, and deer-like. And uh, so these three entities, um, they basically led him into another large room where everything was a light, uh, a light blue color. So I instantly think of the Eiffel 65 I'm blue music video. Just mm -hmm. everything's blue. The people are blue. <laughs> the walls are blue. The, the floor is blue. It's um, so it's 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 something when he's when he's seeing all this. Um, and of course, you know, it, it this room had several strange equipment and uh, different devices. And in the center of the room was a large metallic block that had a um, body shaped depression. So I imagine like a creepy crawler's tray type thing. Oh, yeah. A human, yeah. like the metal tray, but you had like the, the indentation of a human um, in it. And um, basically they, uh, they had told him to uh, take off his clothes and to lie in the middle of this uh, block, which he did so. Um, it's not saying in the account it never says whether he felt that he was being controlled to take off his clothes and do so, or if he did it on his own free will. But um, so he he ended up doing so, and upon uh, basically laying down on this block, he felt glued to it as though he was magnetized. They say in the in the account. The, um, so. <laughs> The and he proceeded to lay on this table until he ultimately passed out. Um, he was not sure how long he was out, but when he finally did come around, he found that he was surrounded by a bunch of these blue entities. So, no longer the three, but literally surrounded by multiple almost a crowd, um, of these entities. Um, uh, as he was looking around, he noticed that two of them held his clothes and shoes and other personal belongings. And now that he was able to get up from this block, um, he began to dress himself as all the entities watched as though this was like something they had never seen before. So <laughs> I instantly think of um, Woodrow Derenberger on Land yeah. House yeah. In, in that way. Um, yeah. how, how, you know, their clothing is is weird and when you do wear it there you get the complete stare like what are you doing but um uh, and there's a lot of similar things actually when i think about it to Woodrow Derenberger in this case um but um essentially uh they they looked around this uh the area that they were coming through and as uh jack followed um two specific entities uh they let him basically what he out of the craft even though he's not sure 100 percent how they did that but they um they seem to have done it through the roof of a building um because as soon as he left a specific hallway he was in this gigantic plaza type area um with all these different types of entities around him and he also this was the first time that he noticed that there not only was male uh, uh, versions of these entities, but also females, and that some of them were different colored. So they weren't all this 
light blue skinned anymore. Um, and that they were um, some of the, he never gets into some of the other colors specifically that he sees, but just that they were different. Um, and basically these entities, they, they take him down through this building through the plaza and they start marching him and showing him around the basically their home world. And he notices that all the buildings are these very unique shapes. Like some of them are pyramid shapes. Um, others are square. Others are domed. And the thing about all these buildings is that they're made of basically what looks like glass that are put together um, uh, with metal. And um, he's led to a specific one, a specific dwelling which is um, a bright green color and that it was dome shaped. And basically he was told that this was going to be his home for the time being. Um, and they, they take him in, they show him around. He basically has an odd shaped bed that um, it's so, so weird. like he gets into like the descriptions of the furniture in this building and it's like oh there's there's this uh rubbery squared substance that i'm assuming is the bed i don't uh, but <laughs> but i uh, so he he ends up sleeping on this even though it probably it might not have even been it could have been um, whatever but the best part is is that he gets into the fact that there's also that there was also a toilet in this building that um, looked like ours um, and that basically it was made of a crystal metallic substance and that basically to clear the bowl, you had to push a button and then all of the, the waste was evaporated. He was, he went into detail about this toilet <laughs> and the space toilet and it's fantastic. Like, um, just this basically it it evaporates the waste that that was the that was the moral of the story and it seemed to be crystal like um even though it looked very similar to our own and also in this home he found various fruits and vegetables and things like that and they were very some of them were similar to melons on earth whereas others were more exotic and basically, the entities that led him to this building showed him how to eat and drink these types of um, products. And then they left him alone um, after doing so. Uh, basically, he, he soon discovered that these entities were planning on keeping him here for a longer period of time, hence the dwelling. And um, he would later on state that he would spend several months to at least a year on this alien world oh, and, <laughs> and and upon doing so uh he occasionally would he would have basically these moments where he'd get super tired and would pass out or there'd be moments where like he'd go days without sleeping um and occasionally these two beings would that brought him to the uh to the dwelling would take him and show him around. Um, on one occasion, they took him to basically what's like a museum uh, was the best way for him to describe it. And that basically this museum was infinite in all of his exhibits. Like each exhibit you had to take 
a um they were kind of like hovercraft uh doom buggies and they would take you from one exhibit to the next because it was a, a an incredible distance between the two um they were about let me see here i have it in my notes they, they, he had like a specific length 500 meters from each exhibit in this museum wow uh, so you would basically so the building was colossal and basically you'd get in the doom buggy you'd be like oh here's early man and then you'd ride the doom buggy a little bit more 500 meters and then you know they'd show you the next exhibit um and essentially in this um world that he was taken to this this doom buggy was one of the only ways to travel along their streets the other was that um the people of this world had basically jetpacks that they Damn. would control with uh buttons on their chest so um very space fairy like mm-hmm. the buttons on the chest um the they and they that was how they would operate to fly around um, these buggies also apparently could enter other dimensions. Um, there was one specific one that he entered where he would just see trees and uh, strange flowers that were huge. And they just took over this whole meadow and um, a huge ocean that uh, he saw watercraft on. And apparently these entities were utilizing this world Um as almost a, a vacation spot. And um, one of the things that the, the entities even pointed to him, that even though this was like an ocean, the water was drinkable. So um, they, they pointed that out for whatever reason. Probably um, to rub it in his face because, you know, like, hey, you can't drink your oceans unless you no, boil it. <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably. It's like, look at this world. This world's great. It's not even <laughs> ours, but, you know, it's great. We're just going to hang out here. Yeah. Have our picnics. But um, so basically he also the entities also stated that this other dimension um, and other world was located on a totally different time period and that it was on a higher vibration from the one that he had come. Um, the description of this world is honestly fantastic when you read about it. it he describes that there was several wide rivers that the, the uh, green and multicolored grass-like plants it's honestly like um how you would imagine alien world would be after all this he was taken home to sleep essentially for the final time um the day after uh the entities basically woke him up and they dragged him to the building that he originally came from And there he saw two entities, a male and a female, that essentially told him um, a little bit about who they were. Because at that time beforehand, these entities did not divulge any information to him about who they were, what they were, what their goals were, um, different things along those lines. They showed him around and they showed him, like, look at all of our technology and this is how you eat in our world. But they never... um, told him about like what their world was called or even what their own names were. Um, So basically when he was taken in front of these beings, he was sat down on a rubbery type couch 
and uh, was told that the reason he was taken um, was that he was taken at random just for study and that he had been studied even when he was asleep. He was afterwards told a little bit about these entities and um, what they what their plan was and uh, that he was told that all the beings on this world um, had names and they were ruled by leadership and that theirs was not the only race on their planet um, as there was, which was four times the size of ours, but that there were also six different types of these types of entities on this planet um, of races. Basically, Jack was then led to an elevator, um, which was in a wide round room of metal. Um, it was about 150 feet in width and about 200 feet high. And this uh, room had a door-sized metal frame. And uh, Jack was asked to pass through this. And upon doing so, he entered a whole new dimension. Um, as he went through this dimension, he entered a kind of what he described as a living movie where he saw scenes of the environment, the inhabitants. Um, he saw animals that he would never even seen before. And he spent some time there and eventually to re-enter this dimension where these entities uh, lived, he had to walk backwards through this doorway. Um <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, it, it's it's something. I just, <laughs> I mean, you always hear about doorways to other dimensions and other or crafts and things like that. But the fact is, is I don't think I've ever heard of a of a case where an ET is walking backwards through one. At least yeah. that I'm at least that I'm aware of. Usually they turn yeah. and then they enter it, or they float into it, or something along those lines. Yeah. So, but for him to have to uh, turn backwards, that's just hysterical yeah. to me a bit right um <laughs> it was from that time that basically uh he was then told that the planet that he was on was rixicron so sounds <laughs> like a really dumb transformer but okay. right like the dumbest transformer and i just like, want to say here here and now i will always talk shit about hot rod because he became Rodimus Prime. I don't care, <laughs> folks. I will talk smack about him all day long. Rodimus Prime, not cool in my oh. book. Just saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh. I, Rixicron, though. Um, yeah. That's like, that's like literally they looked at Earth's, oh, the 60s shitty movies that you'd get in like those 50 yeah. packs and yep. be like, that's so that's going to be our world right there. That's the name. Yep. You know, uh, like Atomic Age Vampire the, or Planet of the, the Vampire, something like that. That's yep. going to be our name. Um, but basically, uh, also during this time when he's talking to these beings and learning a little bit more, he finds that his memory bank had been studied and his brain had been tapped. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the beings from this knew all about his life. And he was told by one of the other entities that humans were still a very low stage of evolution compared with their own. Um, he Basically, John was then placed into a trance-like state and certain information of his planet and other worlds in space implanted in his mind. Um, before 
basically he lost consciousness. Um, he was informed that the inhabitants of this planet were called ultra beings at the very peak of evolution. And that when he came to, uh, he would possess higher knowledge. Um, upon waking up, he found himself lying in the middle of the road next to his motorcycle. And upon checking his watch, this is kind of the interesting kicker of it. He found that it was actually 930 the day of his abduction. Mm. So he actually went back in time 30 minutes. That's weird. In the appropriate location from where he was taken, but 30 minutes back in time. Um, later on, he would um, he basically kept the story to himself. Um, until he actually met, um, and I believe it was 1973, Rex Gilroy, who mm. Rex Gilroy is, um, he's more of a cryptozoologist, which is yes. kind of interesting yeah. why, um, this case even came to him, uh, you know, cause he does a lot of the work with the Baroniger and, um, the Yowie and things like that down there. Yeah. So it's interesting that this came to him. I did a little bit further research and he was a part of um, a UFO group down there. So it's not too surprising, but it, it initially it surprised me knowing his, his more cryptozoology or his background. But um, he basically talked to Jack for a little bit about his encounter and uh, was able to then cover it in basically uh one of two books that uh, Rex Gilroy wrote on the subject of ufology then. Um, and during that time frame, af upon telling all this, Jack essentially suffered a nervous breakdown and basically got all of his family and left the country completely. Damn. He moved to America. If I remember correct, if I check my notes, actually. Uh, yeah, he actually it doesn't even say. But yeah, he basically had a total mental breakdown um, of the experience. And uh, the only way, the only, and kept like a lot of the other stuff that happened to him to himself. So there's even more craziness that he experienced that he didn't even tell Rex Gilroy or um, any other researcher. But that story, um, there's, uh, Rex Gilroy actually has a, an image on one of his websites. Um, I don't know if it's a drawing that he did or if it was a drawing that um, Jack did of the city. And it basically looks like a, like a child's playset. Like you just see, like they take like old blocks and you put like the triangles and the squares and the circles. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the little blue figures. It's really interesting to look at, but it's, it's very childlike and it's whimsical. So I really enjoy that. That's that's a great freaking story. Uh, you know, I appreciate that he went into detail about how the toilets operated like that's that's absolutely fantastic. And yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's some great a weird stuff right there. Um, so my first story here uh, concerns Erminio and Bianca Reese. Uh, this is January 21st, 1976 in Minas Gerais, Brazil, which is kind of one of the hottest hotspots in Brazil. A lot of cases come from this area. So Herminio Reis, 30, 
and his wife Bianca were driving on the Rio de Janeiro Belo Horizonte Highway uh, near Matias Barbosa when they began to feel a little sleepy. Uh, Arminio pulled over their VW to the side of the highway and just fell asleep at the wheel. Several minutes later, Bianca, who was still awake, became aware of a dead silence over the area and noticed a blue light that appeared uh, to intensify and just approach them. So as it neared, she screamed, believing it to be a plane about to crash. And her husband, now awake, had no time to say a word as the couple still in their car were uh, quote unquote absorbed in a bright beam of light as if through a chimney. So they found themselves still in the car in a brightly lit uh, kind of circular garage, as they put it. Uh, a kind of skylight appeared in the ceiling and two human appearing men floated down toward the car and its occupants. They were uh, dark and about two meters tall. So they're about six foot five, six foot six. And they signaled to the couple to open the doors and get out. But Bianca, she was just paralyzed with fear. She wasn't moving. Uh, so Arminio got out first, uh, but his wife did eventually follow um, having, you know, to force her door open, uh, essentially. But uh, the men were speaking incomprehensibly to the couple and Bianca screamed at them. What do you want? What do you want? Uh, her husband, describing the situation as dreamlike, kept repeating, it is a mistake. It is a mistake. <laughs> uh, one of the two beings stepped on a button in the floor and a staircase appeared, uh, up which the couple was led into a large compartment filled with instruments. They were given headsets to put on over their ears. Uh, one of the two entities also donned a similar uh, set and then plugged them into a kind of computer. Uh, as he quickly manipulated the dials, the couple heard a voice say, I am Karen. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> the least oh calming words God. ever. Like At least now. Yes, these aliens have no sense of future culture. They have no idea how upsetting that phrase is. I am Karen, calm down. <laughs> but, you know, Bianca was told that she had to undergo a series of examinations, uh, skin, ears, eyes. Uh, and then she was placed in a box-like device that turned red, inducing in her a static electric charge that caused her to lose consciousness temporarily. So, you know, uh, she was next placed in a form-fitting chair that converted into a table and a bed. So we got more Transformers here. Um, yeah, basically. Yeah. Both were required to drink a, th a thick green liquid of rather bad taste. Several other entities joined the others, including one tall female with dark hair and large dark eyes. The couple was told that they performed uh, medical research on their world and that uh, age was treated as an illness and their and that no one experienced death <laughs> on their world. OK, I mean, that's that's not unheard of, but yeah. Yeah, it's kind of bold, though, you know, it's, uh, it's like uh, really we've conquered these. 
we've conquered death. Yes. <laughs> Witness us. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's uh Oh god. These I one of my favorite things about doing alien contact stories is when the aliens just start talking shit about Earth like constantly. <laughs> it's oh, just yeah. like, "Oh, your primitive ways. It's so cute, you know?" Oh. <laughs> uh... It's just, yeah, it's just so great. You know, nobody experiences death here. And um, they were finally advised not to speak about their experience since they would be considered mad if they did. They were told that they had a method to erase memory and then they were set free to continue their journey. Bianca claimed that by means of a small implement that was implanted during their experience, she was able to remain in communication with Karen. (laughs) Something nobody wants ever. Uh, but she said it was uh, by technology, not tele, not telepathy. Okay. Uh, a second encounter took place subsequently with two additional witnesses in attendance. No details about this are known. It appears that Bianca has given a serious uh, has been given a serious revelation about which she is forbidden to speak. And like that is that's that right there is uh, pure humcat, folks. Uh, that is yeah. a humcat entry that is so I, uh, it's just so fantastic. Karen, I am just, Karen. Calm down. Just... <laughs> it makes you wonder, though, if they just like picked a random name. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's it's one of those things where it's it's kind of uh, obviously, I mean, it's not the first time we've ever heard of an extraterrestrial calling themselves by a human name. I mean, we, we, we already covered injury a little bit when we're talking about Lanulos, but but still it's um, it's just Karen, though, out of everything. <laughs> yep. Just Karen. It's like it, it's it's almost like Paul, like imagining like literally like if Paul, the like the movie character was actually like a real account. Yes. You're yep. seeing that like, calm down, Paul, Mary, <laughs> yeah. birds, it'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, all right. OK, so the next case <laughs> I I have is uh, it's it's kind of a little bit for those a little bit in the know, a little bit more familiar one. Uh, but the Judy Kendall abduction. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, this one was covered, obviously, like uh, we were talking earlier on about, like by Bud Hopkins. Um, but it also is in uh, uh, the, the APRO Bulletin covered it. The uh, Judy Kendall spoke at the 1979 uh, MUFON Symposium. Um, I have a, I have it in. Um ufo magazine too they did a pretty decent spread on it yeah there's uh, a canadian ufo report yeah um one of the most interesting things i came across is she actually uh wrote her account down in uh, a book by uh, michael brin and rosemary ellen guiley and she actually sent it in and it was called the road to the strange Mm. um and that actually kind of cleared up a little bit of some of the other stuff that um kind of was uh ambiguous uh a little bit more a little bit more definition and things like that into like some of the descriptions of the entities that she saw and um some of the events but um basically on November 26 1972 uh 28 year old legal secretary Judy Kendall and her younger sisters Dannon and Becky 
were driving home to Zamora from their mother's house in Bodega Bay. Um, the sisters had left at and were planning to get home by 10 p.m. Uh, as the trip should have taken about two and a half hours, but they allow themselves about a three hour bit of wiggle room to get home. So they left their grandmother's house at 5.30 p.m. Uh, the trip home as they got near Zamora, there was a certain section of road that crossed Interstate 505, and it had basically a a yellow flashing light um, next to it and a, a road curving sign. Um, and this led then to a bridge. And um, they were familiar with the area. They had crossed uh, this particular uh, road, which um, the, the, the and uh, crossed Cash Creek, which is the the um, which led into the the bridge that covers that. Um, so they were very familiar with the road. Uh, no reason for them to have had any sort of issues or mishaps. Um, but as they were returning home, they suddenly realized that they weren't getting to the turn off. Uh, that led them basically to their house. Um, yet at this time, they were also getting extremely tired as though everything seemed to almost slow. Um, and at one point, Judy and her sister said almost in unison, I wonder why we're not getting off the turnoff. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment, they suddenly noticed that they had ended up at that same flashing yellow light um and sign um and then they recrossed the bridge that they seemingly had just recrossed um but only now they they were so tired they could barely keep their eyes open um when they finally got home they were expecting themselves to be to be only about 10 10 30 maybe at the latest here was midnight um mm-hmm. and uh their parents were still up and around because they were surprised at the fact that basically four and a half hours had passed since they were said that they were leaving and supposed to be home. Um, the The parents, of course, obviously dismissed it. Uh, they were like, oh, you were out partying and you lied and all that, all that type of jazz there. Um, but of course, you know, they, the, the sisters all stuck together and they denied it. Um, and then the dad basically was like, oh, well, maybe you guys got stuck somewhere or forgot how to get home or took a wrong road. And the sisters are like, well, there's no way we've traveled this you know, road. How many times we're familiar with the area? There's no way that we should have been able to get back to that point. But the father, you know, doesn't listen. So he pulls down a map and tries to figure out where they could have ended up back at that yellow flashing light. And of course, upon doing so, they found that there was no way. Mm. Um, so they basically let it go. They, they're like, okay, that was just something weird, something, whatever. Um, and nothing was really discussed about it. They, uh, except for the fact that their mother did call their grandmother to see if they did in fact leave at five 30, which the, the, she did confirm. Um, basically then things kind of, uh, they 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 kind of just didn't question. They left this strange incident to itself until they were watching um, a couple of years later, Escape to Witch Mountain. 
And there's a scene in that movie where an RV or um, some other vehicle is lifted up off the ground. And in that moment, her and one of her sisters was basically watching this and they felt very uneasy about this, almost a sense of like deja vu type thing that they could relate to those images. Um, but, you know, they again left it kind of at that. Now, a couple years after even that, um, she, <laughs> Judy had moved to um, another area of California. And while she was up near YOLO, California, <laughs> which, yep. which YOLO never even would have figured, but YOLO, right. California, um, uh, she basically was um, coming home from visiting friends uh, at 11.30 p.m. when she saw a strange light um, flashing colors. And this light would go from a bright white light to almost a dark orange-ish colored light. And it would and it did this fl- uh, change in color about three different times. Um, and she originally had thought, oh, you know, the the area which was um, a gravel pit had gotten some some new lights. Um, <laughs> and, you know, eventually, though, as she's watching this object, she notes that um, she knows that the object is suddenly rising and not staying like how a sign or, you know, some other sort of form of natural illumination would be. And that it basically rose to the air and then just disappeared. And upon realizing that this was not, you know, the new lights at the gravel pit, she called her friend and said, um, oh, oh, I saw a UFO and began telling her about it. And her friend, upon hearing this, um, because uh, apparently she was very interested in the UFO phenomenon, just kind of asked her, did you ever figure out what happened uh, with that missing, that period of missing time along the road? Um, And she said no. And uh, originally she thought that it was kind of strange that her friend even brought it up. But um, then realized, oh, well, she's into UFOs. Maybe, you know, there's something similar to it. Um, And it was from there that her friend was like, why don't you get a hold of J. Allen Hynek? And uh, (laughs) because um, the the friend thought that she went through what what she called the time warp. um, And basically, let's do the time warp again. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know? Uh, but if your car's jumping to the left, you might want to get that checked. Um, yeah. <laughs> Big time. Uh, but um, it's essentially, so she so she ends up writing to Heineck and talking about um, the, the basically. Oh, you know, this is what happened to me. Uh, my friend says that you know it was a time warp, and um, basically, what do you think? And uh, Heineck basically was like, well, first of all, it's it's not really called a time warp. It's called a time lapse. <laughs> let me let me let me let me set this. Let me set the record straight, because that was something that they really emphasize in all accounts of this. 
And um, he's like, I, I don't I don't think that that's what happened to you and your friend. Let me get some members of the, the California branch of MUFON down there and we'll talk to you. Um, so, you know, she agreed. And um, Heineck ended up sending Paul Cerny uh, to go and investigate. And essentially she certainly did the usual thing. He, he talked to her, her boss, Joe, and basically uh, Cerny wanted to make sure that, and I quote that she wasn't a flake. And um, <laughs> Jesus. And of course, um, in, in her version of the story, when she's retelling this, she's like, you just should have asked me myself. I would have told you I'm not a flake. But <laughs> the boss basically said, now, nah, you know, everything's kosher. Um, upon telling her and talking to her and figuring things out, they basically wanted to get a hypnotist involved because he actually brought up the possibility to her that there was a chance that she was abducted. Um, and Cerny said, basically, one way we can find out for sure is to regress you and find out what happened at the time. Mm-hmm. Judy originally hearing this said, no, no, there's no way. He's got to be kidding. Um, even though uh, she did note that upon hearing that, her heart did jump into her throat. Um Cerny then contacted uh, Dr. Alvin Lawson, um, who was an English professor at Cal State, and um, they also got a hold of Dr. W.C. McCall, uh, who who joined him. They they both worked on the Brian Scott case that I mentioned earlier, too. But basically, they got them together uh, to fly up to uh, Woodland, where Judy was living and basically, when the original session occurred, it was a room full of people. They had the, they had Cerny and Lawson and McCall, but also Judy ended up getting a group of people together, basically to make sure that when she was under, everything was on the up and up. Like these people weren't going to do anything too seedy or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and. In in the uh, basically her telling of the accounts that everything was fine, Every, they, they treated me very professionally and respected me, um, and that once they uh, regressed her, she remembered the trip down the road, and upon doing so, uh, there was a sudden coldness, and she described a void around the car. Um. From there, she remembered that the car was suddenly lifted straight off the road and into uh, a UFO. Um, And once the the car was in the craft, she seemed to pass out. And she had the feeling of being floated out of the car and placed in a room. And when she woke, she found herself lying on a hard, um, seemingly stainless steel table and covered with a sheet in a round room. there was a ring of windows through which she could see stars. Um, and the, the feeling, there was a feeling of cold that was so intense that even though she was covered with a sheet, it still got to her. Um, her sisters were gone also. She didn't see them, but she was sure that they were placed in other rooms. And um, as she attempted to move, she discovered that there was something restraining her. Um, 
it seemed to be restraining her specifically around the area of the head. And occasionally at times she was able to see around her and her surroundings and she could see that there was several bucket seats with lights over top of them and a pan control panel um, in this room. Um, as she also was looking around, she began to notice that there were beings around her. Um, the To her feet, there were three short beings, which wore gray colored suits that completely covered them. And on their faces, they had masks, which to Judy, she would describe them as similar to the same type of masks that aviator pilots in World War II would, would wear. So, mm. um, you know, the big, the, the classic hose and the yeah. almost uh, that that sort of apparatus. Um, and these beings also, uh, she could tell that she couldn't really make out um, other attributes of their faces, but she could see that they had uh, large eyes that were orange or yellow in color. Um, and these beings were small, much smaller than all the other entities that she would later see. Um, to her left, uh, she was surprised to see what she would describe looking as a human girl. Um, she had brown hair. Um, she was basically um, brownish black hair, that is. And uh, she had blue eyes. She had very fair skin. Um, she would describe her as having a medium build and that she was about five foot four to five foot six. Um, she also noticed that next to her, there was a table. Um or a little type of tray that you would see almost like in a hospital. Mm. And uh, on it, there were probes and um, a black box with, with speaker holes. Now to her right, as she's looking around at this scene, she saw a long hallway and this to her was the most terrifying part of her encounter. Um, because as she's looking down this hallway and almost it's almost horror film esque or sci-fi esque, you see this long hallway and she sees something coming towards her. And as she sees this entity approach, it's just pure fear. Um, the entity she would later refer to as the witch doctor. And this thing is bizarre, beyond mm -hmm. bizarre. It it basically is. Um, there's an eyewitness sketch that appears in um, either the Fresno. It's uh, one second. It's in it's in one of the UFO newspaper clippings compilations, but um, it's either the Daily Collegian or the Fresno Bee. Uh, and they they basically show what this entity looked like to her. And it was this big light bulb shaped head. Um and that it had these large eyes that she would describe almost insect-like, but that's not exactly accurate. Um, they're insect-like in the fact that they were the grasshopper-shaped, and mm -hmm. that they went from like the human eyebrow to the cheekbone, and that they had large red pupils that were elongated, um, with uh, 
But the thing about these eyes is that they were also translucent or transparent, depending mm-hmm. on your interpretation. So you yeah. could see like the ridges inside and they just looked like jelly masses. And you could see the little red veins inside of them, um, which is a haunting <laughs> image. Yeah, um, um, it, the image that you're portraying uh it sounds a lot like the abductors in the David Stevens case because they had that was a big kind mm-hmm. of like light bulby kind of head, those kind of eyes. Um, they're very arresting to look at because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just like the size of their head is like really huge. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. She says that it's very oddly shaped that basically. The the head was like an over-exaggerated light bulb at the top, more Mm -hmm. bulbous than bulbous. Um, And then she couldn't make out a mouth because um, there was a little mask that covered its face right there. Um, And also that um, instead of a classical nose, it had two long uh, holes so I, it almost, uh, in my mind, is like the, the aliens from bad taste, that type of nostril structure. Right. Um, um, the entity also had, aside from being these translucent eyes, having an almost transparent skin. So she could see all the veins underneath. And um, essentially, when, when she saw this entity, she she freaked. Um the the entity is was much taller than the other uh, beings. It was approximately about seven to eight feet tall, and um, seemed to be wearing a type of turtleneck type um, outfit. Um, and while the the head of this creature seemed very um, basically bizarre and alien the rest of its body was very human like she she mentioned it like it had five finger hands and um nothing aside from its skin being translucent nothing specifically alien about the rest of its physiology um during that time when she saw this entity she just began to cry and become hysterical and um she literally during the hypnotic session cried out, listen, uh, because they just kept trying to get more information about this being in the moments up to that point. I'm going to send you a a picture of this being in the chat um, uh, of the one that I, that I'm mentioning because like there are there it's, I don't think it's going to be the exact same, but there, there are a lot of similarities to what you're saying. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting looking being so all right let me check quick it's it's, it's a little eerie uh, the, not exactly the same but like yeah like this this sketch is terrifying it literally looks oh, yeah. like a light a light bulb with eyes basically yeah 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 it's that was one of the coolest things i think i found when i was doing research was um i just was trying to find just a single newspaper account of it and i found a couple um, and plenty of pictures of her. Um, and then there was a, an assistant that actually demonstrated a picture of um, the alien that, that the female alien that mm-hmm. she encountered. That was all different things that appeared in um, 
the uh, the actual newspapers. Um, but yeah, so that is that's interesting because there is that similarity of like mm-hmm. the shape of the head. Um, yep. there is like some some differences. Like the eyes are definitely yeah, uh, they're a little different. Yeah, but but they don't have a visible mouth. They kind of no. have a nose. But um, yeah, I thought that like those features and the the way that they are similar was was pretty interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's something too. Is it's like there's a lot of extraterrestrials that do kind of like or other entities that do kind of bear similar resemblances to each other. Um, uh, but then there's always the ones where it's like there's the stark differences. Like um, we were talking about the George Kowalczyk or not George Kowalczyk. George Kowalczyk. And and like um, I always would love to see eyewitness sketches of what he saw, because when you look at all the other entities that were seen during that time that were Bigfoot like there's differences like they have like the yeah. more like wolf like wolf like features like the pointed yep. ears and the snout and the and the protruding yep. fangs and um, and of course, three toe tracks for a lot of them. But um, and then you look at Momo, for example, um right or it's like the rag doll so there's like even with that like the 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 hairy hominid type entities reported with ufos there are there's differences yeah um so it, it makes you it for me it makes me wonder if they're like either different species or if they're just things that kind of look the same yeah um after um judy became ex- basically hysterical seeing this entity um during the hypnotic regression, it got to the point where they kept going back to that point and they wanted her to re get more information about what she was seeing. And it got to the point where she's just like, I'm not going to talk anymore until I no longer see this being. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't deal with it. I do not want to see it one more time. And so they, they basically were obliged and um, they let her skip that part. Um, and during the time when the entity is approaching her, the, the female um, being uh, reaches, basically says to her, it's okay. It's okay. You're fine. It's okay. Um, very, very David Huggins-esque. Yeah. Um, and the witch doctor then begins to communicate with Judy and says, um, in a voice that to her sounded machine-like almost as though it came from a megaphone um and that basically the witch doctor to communicate with her put its hand on her head and pretty much said the exact same things it's okay it's fine you know um it's okay and the as it was also trying to comfort her the the female being says it's okay judy it's okay and this really struck judy at the time because she's like um she, in, in, in a quote she'd said how did she know my name i didn't tell her my name i couldn't understand why they knew my name and then she thought well shoot if they know how to pick me up off the ground or take my car off the ground they certainly probably know our names or knew a way to, of finding out um and as soon as they were done comforting her, they went and started to perform um, basically an examination on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 
did a variety of different things. Um, they looked in her ears. They studied her feet intently. Um, one of the most kind of gross things is they removed her urine through a catheter. Mm. Um, Judy at one point had one arm or hand bound so that she could not move it. Um, and kind of as stated earlier, they, there was times where the restrictions from her head were gone. So she could see a little bit further around the room. Um, at one point during the examination, uh, the female entity passed the witch doctor um, a container filled with a colorless liquid um, that she couldn't see through. Um, at another point during the examination, uh, the beings placed a heavy metal machine over her eyes so she could not see. And upon doing this, she was able to hear um, a quiet motor running inside. She had thought that basically this was some sort of brain scan device. Um, uh, and the machine, the, the feeling of extreme cold um, because of this machine, uh, she felt at times was alleviated. Um, but occasionally she was poked and prodded and she felt shaky and um during this experience she also experienced pain in her side and had incredible headaches um and difficulty in breathing during this examination um while all this was going on these the world war ii masked entities never left the foot of the table and the um during the examination she could feel that someone was behind her that she couldn't see mm -hmm. um as though there was uh, some other entity in the room that she was sure was there, but she just wasn't sure who or what, or if it was even another version of the ones that she had seen previously. Um, there was times when, Judy, when this whole examination was going on that Judy would look up and the beings would be looking at each other, but they would not be saying anything. And so Judy thought that they were talking to each other telepathically. And it kind of, uh, Judy would describe the experience thusly um, about the whole examination. It was like I was a guinea pig. They just wanted to see what was going on with our bodies or something. I thought it was maybe a scientific physical examination type of thing. They treated me like I was, like we have the apes. We have mice and rats and such that we use for experiments. I felt like I was being treated as a lower level or lower class or lower form of life than they were. It was like I was the dog and they were the master type of thing. While this experience is going on, she suddenly hears from another, like a cry that she knows instantly is from her sister. Um, and that is coming from another one of the rooms. And she of course, obviously becomes completely concerned and um, basically began to call out in distress to her sisters. Um, but there was nothing that she could do at the time. So soon, though, the examination was over and she basically the she was picked up then by um, four of these World War II type 
entities. They grabbed um, her one for each arm and one for each leg and proceeded to carry her to her car. And upon opening the door, they, they, this is the best part. I love this. And, and upon opening the door, they throw her in. And the way that they, 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 the way that they do it apparently is so perfect that she's sitting up behind the driver's seat like this. So you just imagine these entities just throwing her, yeah. sitting her and, and just landing perfectly. Um, and, uh, Basically, the car door shuts and she's left there by herself for a while. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Like, that's perfect. Like, look, if, if these guys could end, like, they'd be perfect for a football team. Like, they <laughs> have the perfect coordination <laughs> to run a play. If they could chuck somebody in their car, just like, absolutely perfectly. So they're just like sitting there. Uh, you want them on your team. You oh, really yes. Do. <laughs> oh, yes. It makes me laugh every time I read that part because it's yeah. just it's just hysterical. At first, when I first read the account, it it, it um, in some sources, they make it sound like they, they just haphazardly like throw her in there. And, you know, you just imagine like her legs like this way and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, your legs are up. Um, but then when you get into her telling the account, it's no, they threw me in and it was perfect. It was it was great. Like these guys were professionals at throwing people into cars yep, as though they had professionals as though they had done it before. So um and then it makes you me wonder because it's like, does that mean that um these entities have been abducting people for a long time and that they've got it down packed? Right. Like, are we gonna find earlier accounts of similar entities? And it's like, oh yeah, no, they stuck me head down by towards the pedals and my feet up or something along those lines. So that just makes me laugh. That's it. Um one of the best parts about this encounter yep. but um during during that moment then when she's in the car um she's waiting for her sisters because they're not in the vehicle and she's getting concerned because she's like i don't know how long i'm gonna wait and she just happens to look over and they're sitting is her sister and she looks in the back there's the other sister it was almost as though they just materialized into the car um she had no way of doing it she doesn't remember them coming down the hallway or opening the door or any of that just bam there they are the next thing that judy remembers is coming to that yellow light again um the craft basically dropping her off and her driving returning home and um <laughs> there's uh, a couple times where she was asked um, about how if she would how she feels about the encounter and um, she has mixed feelings about it that she says in The Road to the Strange um, that basically sometimes she was glad that she went through this experience and other times that she's not um, and that basically after this and every and the, and the storm that followed that um she developed the feelings of jitteriness and uh, that she always had the feeling of being followed or watched. And she later on would be like that she would kind of want to get re-hypnotized to see if there was anything else 
that occurred or anything else that occurred that night. Um, her sisters, on the other hand, uh, basically wanted nothing to do with this encounter. They um, they basically uh, have kept quiet about it. There's nothing that I've even been able to find about their interviews outside of what was in um, really Bud Hopkins' book. Um, it The rest of it, almost all the information comes from Judy uh, Kendall. So, mm. um, but yeah, so that's that was her experience then. Um, God damn aliens with their perfect throwing abilities. It's just like that. Yeah, that that story is just terrifying on so many levels. Like it, it kind of reminds a lot of I don't know the Stanford Three and like mm. and how they went through what they went through and and such but like uh i would say judy got a little more reassurance when she was on their the, the craft than they did but like yeah that story's just it's terrifying absolutely yeah. terrifying oh yeah yeah it's just to see that the like the witch doctor entity i think is probably the most horrific thing about that because of mm-hmm. just the description like Nobody wants to see anything transparent at all. No. Like, like Mm-mm. if like there's there's like fish in the ocean that have like transparent faces yeah. and eyes and things like that, and they are horrifying. Imagine like encountering something that's like that. That's arguably more intelligent than you, or yeah. as, you know, it's uh, that just adds a whole new patina to it. And I'm. And that honestly is one of the things that why this case really stands out to me is really that entity in particular, because the World War II mask ones. I mean, there's tons of cases with weird hose faced um, apparatus wearing entities um, and things like that. So that's that's nothing exactly new, but something like that, where it's literally like. You can see all the veins and they're bright red and yeah, mm-hmm. you know, red elongated eye pupils. No, thank you. No, no, thank you. No. So, my next story is the case of Rachel Jones. So, on the evening of June 20th, 1977, Rachel Jones, a pseudonym. Uh, retired at 11.35 p.m. 20 minutes later, she snapped awake to the sound of footsteps coming up the stairs to her apartment. She was aware of a figure in her room, but assumed it was a friend, just like coming to like play a prank on her or something. So strangely, though, she felt paralyzed. She was unable to move or speak, and she could feel the bed uh, sheets near her feet moving as if they were being lifted the only details she could make out of the figure in the room was a blue suit that they were wearing in the next moment rachel was rushed out of her bed toward the living room uh at 11 or at 1 a.m uh two full hours later she woke the next morning with a severe headache she tried to get to the bottom of the strange visitor in the night contacting a friend that she assumed had stopped by, but denied it 
altogether. Uh, to quote an interesting passage from the April Bulletin, uh, during the next week, Miss Jones took a flight to Dallas, Texas, during which she saw two flashes of light while the aircraft was in heavy cloud cover in which she felt was a kind of greeting. Later, she and her daughter puzzled over a scar approximately in the shape of a wheel with spokes about one centimeter or 0.4 inches in diameter, which was located on the back of her left shoulder. Not long after Rachel contacted APRO, uh, was examined by a doctor and by a psychologist, uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who also conducted a hypnosis session on her. And... Um, I, I want to quote APRO's article on the details of her experience here because it's it's just it's interesting. Um, the whole transcript of the hypnotic session is very lengthy. Therefore, the salient points will be set forth in abbreviated form. Amidst many moans and grimaces, Rachel Jones described a being who to her was ugly just stood there, wore a kind of shirt with an inverted <laughs> triangular design on it, who had no pupils in his eyes and no oh. neck. The nose of the entity seemed to be normal, like ours, she said, but the mouth was like a line, and the ears like baby ears, small and flat. It had very little hair, thin on top, and some around the sides. Actually, I might have the sketch for you. Um, oh, sweet. Sweet. Because at first it kind of sounded very much like the Riri Carjacker, but then it went totally different. Yeah. It's, yeah, like um, I'm picturing the pupilless eyes and um, just the big round head, because um, based on the eyewitness sketch there. And I mean, the ears with the Riri Carjacker, they're kind of, I mean, they're close to the top, but they're, depending yeah. on some of the depictions, they're flatter, but. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's it's see it's here. in the chat now. Um, it's an interesting looking figure. Oh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so by no neck, it's a floating head. It looks like a floating head on a body. Oh my god. Yeah. That is yeah. totally different than what I was picturing. Okay. Yeah. I thought there would have been some connectiveness there. No, oh. none whatsoever um miss jones had a memory of the creature carrying her and then taking her to fernand's lake a place where she had been before where they went through the door and where she saw windows with the seals she remarks that the floor is cold she had no shoes on and as she looks down at her feet she notices for the first time the boots of the entity they and his trousers are all one piece of clothing. When Rachel and the entity entered the chamber, she noted that the door was large enough so that they entered side by side. There were three other entities in the enclosure, two of whom looked like her companion, and the other looked a lot like us. When Dr. Sprinkle asked if he looked exactly like us, she said, more like us. <laughs> He took her by the hand and she no longer felt cold. Rather, she felt warm. At this point, a door opens, making a humming sound. At any rate, she associates the sound with the opening of the door. She sees an upright wheel in the center of the room and starts toward it, uh, but is pulled back by the almost human entity. 
She notes that the walls look metallic, like brushed aluminum. Dull, but not smooth. The room is lighted, but she sees no lights as such. Her companion guides her into the room, which is kind of square, with rounded corners. In the ceiling is an apparatus which Rachel describes as much like a wagon wheel, but much more streamlined and very shiny. And like, I'm never going to be able to listen to the song, uh, you know, wagon wheel ever again <laughs> and, and think of it the same way i'm sorry darius rucker oh. like uh you it, it's ruined now it's ruined <laughs> but you know uh at this point rachel becomes very disturbed groans and says that the wheel has some tubes hanging from it but i don't like the looks of it those tubes, they're like metal with something wrapped around it. Oh, God, I don't know what it is. I don't like it. She then goes on to say that the dangling things look like drills. They look like some surgical instruments I've seen, but not like anything I've ever seen. Rachel is then asked to sit down, please. She was very happy that the man said please, although he never said anything. She heard it in her mind. She sat down on a box-like affair, looked at her feet, noting that they were tan. She gets the mental impression that she, that he doesn't understand what she's thinking about, tan feet. Then she wonders if he has a name, and hears Chauvin. She thought, Chauvin? And he corrected her. His name is Chauvar. <laughs> Chauvar. Shovar. Um, Shovar. Yes, Shovar. Uh, then uh, the men, then the man asked her to take off her shirt. She is embarrassed and doesn't want to comply. She is told they want to examine her skin, her arms, shoulders, and back. After a period of groaning and weeping interspersed with protestations about having to disrobe, Rachel says that she took her shirt off. She is asked about the line on her skin, and she explains that she swims and lays in the sun a lot, and that the line is a demarcation of where her swimsuit protects her from the sun. <laughs> Basically, this woman is explaining what a sunburn is to an alien. Oh, my God. That's freaking great. Yeah. Rachel uh, does not stipulate at what point she went from a sitting to a lying position, but her next revelation is of lying on her stomach and the whole floor is rising. She indicates puzzlement at this. Then she says they put some kind of light on her back, which feels warm. Then something wet is put on her shoulder, which burns. During the hypnotic session, at this time, Rachel demonstrates considerable distress, crying and describing the pain. Then she sees the man up by her head and yells to him to stop. He tells her it won't hurt anyone and the pain stops. Rachel's next recollection is of sitting up and having her shirt back on. I don't like him, she says. She asked mentally. Are you going to let me go home? He didn't answer her. She is thinking he is not very nice, and he says he didn't mean to harm her. She didn't believe him, felt that he didn't know what pain was. Rachel then confronted the being, wanting to know why she was taken, but the being kept saying it wasn't the right time, and that they had made a change in Rachel. This change would make her 
better for others. When asked if they had met before, the being answered, yes. A door then opened and three beings entered the room. She asked if she would see them again, and they guaranteed that she would, and that they knew where to find her. She returned to her bedroom where she awoke startled. The clock read 1.57 a.m. And that's the story oh, of Rachel Jones. So weird. It is. It's, it's so weird. weird. Shovar, you son of a bitch. Shovar. <laughs> so the next case that I have, um, I originally found in Albert Rosales's um, Humanoid Encounters. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's, it's an excellent resource. I, I literally, there's times where if I'm looking for something really weird to write about or if I'm just bored or, you know, whatever, I'll just flip through it and I'll just see where it takes me type of a thing. Yeah. And while flipping through it, I found this well, really weird case um, from Tajikistan. Um, and it was occurred in the Pamir's Mountains, uh, Penzikit. I'm probably totally butchering that, but mm. um, uh, essentially, um, this occurred in the summer of 1973. An artist and painter named Vladimir was hunting goats in the Pamir Mountains, uh, very near the towns of, of uh, Penzikit, uh, before going to the location um, where he was out hunting. He had heard tales from the local shepherds that at times a second moon could be seen in the sky. Uh, Vladimir was traveling um a particular pass in this area when he stumbled into what appeared to be an invisible wall and mm -hmm. suddenly became paralyzed um as he stood there a large mushroom shaped object appeared nearby uh the object was silver and dome shaped uh standing on a cone base um and soon several humanoid entities were standing near the object uh the beings were dressed in a silvery overalls um and they wore cowls covering their heads and they had emotionless faces uh one of the humanoid beings um approached um and grabbed vladimir by the scruff of the neck in one hand and in the other grabbed his rifle and another one of these entities proceeded to grab a goat nearby. And uh, the entities then suddenly rose up into the air and zoomed towards an opening in uh, the object. Um, at this time, Vladimir was unconscious and he was brought aboard the strange craft. Um, and inside the object, there was what Vladimir would call a beautiful female alien. Um, who was small in stature and well-built with broad, somewhat bulging eyes. Um, the entity proposed to the to the uh, ones that brought him aboard that they connect his brain into some kind of equipment. And on a nearby screen, he saw all the main events of his life. Um, and the beings seemed to watch this 
but they did they didn't have the same effect as Vladimir, who was so ecstatic um to have had the chance to re-experience these events. Um and they would continue to experiment on him and until eventually he was left alone with the female alien. Uh Vladimir claimed that he could not help uh but admire her beauty. Mm. And she would describe the he would describe the entity as having peach colored smooth hands and arms that were slightly violet in color. Um, she had curly, light flowing hair, which descended down over her shoulders to her hips. And this is interesting because it kind of differs from cases like Anto- Antonio Villasboas or Antonio Nelson Tasca or uh, where. You know the 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 abduct the uh, person is instantly attracted, and the alien is kind of either okay with it or, um, seemingly causing it. In this one, in this case, it's a little bit different. Um, it, it's almost uh, he almost uh, gets a little pointers from James Bond a bit. Uh, okay, because <laughs> um, basically. Unable to control himself, Vladimir approached the woman and kissed her. He remembered a citrus-like smell emanating from her breath. The alien woman then began to speak in a fashion that was robotic and monotone and said, This is not planned. But <laughs> Vladimir <laughs> but Vladimir, uh, basically did not stop and continued to seduce the entity until the two began to have intercourse. Oh, God. Oh, God. So, I don't even know what to do with that. I saw that, and that instantly is why it made the list. I'm like, um, t- typical, typical dude shit here. <laughs> um, uh, interestingly enough, though, apparently. And this also gets into why it's different from other UFO cases of, you know, people have an interstellar intercourse is that um, the humanoids suddenly bursted into the room and this startled Vladimir. Um, And they, they, they immediately like pulled him off and they seemed to reproach the woman and they suddenly dragged Vladimir out to another room and they placed him on a table resembling a surgery table. Um, he then felt his body being pierced by what he thought was um, a vortex of currents. Um, and then suddenly what he described as black hands began to penetrate inside his body and begin to examine his organs. He, he could experience no pain at first as the hands entered him and examined his lower organs. But when one of the hands reached and touched his heart, he suddenly was in incredible pain was unable to control himself and screamed until he lost consciousness. Um, Sometimes later he awoke on the ground near a small river in a grassy field. And upon looking nearby, he noticed one of the humanoids in what he described as a spacesuit. And that the entity then looked at him and said, we need you. We implanted a program into your organism that will always track you. Wait until we connect with you. And at that point, the entity disappeared. 
Um, Vladimir then got up and descended down from the mountains and reached the town, um, which was several kilometers away. Um, and then in 1990, these beings would uh, once again reach out to Vladimir, and they told him to build a strange device that Vladimir would never discuss openly. And um, eventually his account was uh, later published in a newspaper in 1992 about his abduction. Um, and that at the time of when they wrote that, he was working on a book, yet nothing seemed to have come to fruition with that. So that just goes to show you, folks, don't try and seduce alien robots or anything like that. That's what happens to you. Just yeah. don't do it. Just yeah. don't do it. Like she wasn't into it. You could have just like, you know, backed away, but no. Oh yeah. You had to do that. And you had your ass dragged into a room and you had your heart squeezed. That's what oh. you get for doing that. That's Damn. just it's it's so weird. Like you don't hear yeah. about things like that. And then on top of that, you know, the the they're abducting goats and that <laughs> you never yeah. even hear about then. You don't hear what happens to the goat then. It's it's like no. Carl Higdon's elk. You don't hear what right. happens to him. They're so. just like shoved in this thing and like nobody knows what happens to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my next story is the story of Kefarina Vargas Martin uh, on August 3rd, 1977. And, and, and I want to preface this is by saying it's not totally an abduction, but it's very abduction like. Okay. Um, so. August 3rd, 1977, at around 7.30 p.m., Kefarina Vargas Martin left her home in Escalda and headed to, uh, for Alamonster La Real, which is 13 kilometers or eight miles uh, from, from her uh, town, to help her grandmother with household chores. Um, she set out after listening to her favorite radio soap opera, and if you're wondering why she set out late to do this task, uh, there were local festivals that were taking place and that she, you know, was preparing for and stuff. So um, going and doing these tasks for her grandmother was kind of just a, a normal thing. So it take it took two days to prepare for this festival and she was uh, in heavy in like the preparations for it. So. At around 7.55 p.m. between Escalda and the village of La Corte, in the fading twilight, a light reflected into her eyes. She was unaware of the source, but quickened her pace nonetheless. The path she traveled along was eerie. She was surrounded by mountains and tall grass and walked on a narrow dirt road. Oddly, her pace didn't quicken she felt as if something was preventing her from moving faster ahead of her another light struck her face it was a beam of white light similar in size to a bicycle reflector it was painful to look at and shortly after she felt strength draining from her at that moment two tall human-like figures appeared in the place where the light had been they stood just four meters or 13 feet from her one was a woman who was quite tall, two meters or six and a half feet. She had flat blonde hair that went down to the middle of her back. Her eyes were quite large, as were her eyebrows arching to the middle of the forehead. Her mouth and nose were minimal, the mouth consisting of just a slit, 
while she could only make out two nostrils. She was dressed in a dark green tunic that was luminous in her own right, in its own right, and made slow gestures. The man had very similar features to the woman, but did not move. He had shoulder-length hair and wore layers of brown tunics with vertical lines. Their skin was a lemony yellow in color. Moments after these beings appeared, Kefarina lost consciousness, and when she awoke, she was alone on the road. She promptly ran home. The time was now ten minutes to nine, meaning that she was unconscious for nearly an hour. At the entrance to the village, Kefarina opened her purse to see if she was missing anything and noticed that her uh, identity card had disappeared. She also realized that the crown of her watch was missing. Shortly afterwards, during a search uh, carried out in the area by local men and um, uh, the following day by the Civil Guard, only uh, a few bus tickets belonging to her were found and some uh, razor blades that the witness attributed to like uh, goat herders and, and stuff in the area was was found. But uh, her ID was never located again. Um and uh yeah there are, this isn't a clear abduction case but there are elements to it mm-hmm. uh that are very strange and um abduction like oh definitely mm-hmm. definitely well this next case that that i have um is uh also kind of a little bit weird because it's one that it has an entity involved with it, but you don't ever see the captors of yeah. the abductee. Um, and that's the abduction of Durant Mello uh, Faraz. Um, on February 28, 1974, at 7.30 p.m., 18-year-old Durant Mello Faraz was at home standing in the service area of his kitchen when all of a sudden he was no longer at home and somewhere else. Um, the strange place he found himself in was a square room about 16 feet by 13 feet and the color of smoked glass with no windows or doors. The ceiling of the room was oddly shaped and uh, it appeared to be almost funnel-like. Um, before he could wonder how he got to this location, he heard a voice that uh, filled the room in an incredibly loud fashion, which said, keep calm. We are your friends. Uh, Durant looked for some person or just where the voice was coming from and was able to find a small device that was box shaped um, and it had a blinking red light on it in one corner of the room. Um, upon inspecting this device, he at first thought that maybe it was a tape recorder, but this proved not to be the case as he later was certain it was some sort of translating device. Um, the next thing Durant realized was that the wall in front of him opened up and a strange oval shaped object of the same color as everything else around him uh, came forward. Um, 
when the object came forward him, a yellow light came down onto him from uh, the center of the ceiling, and this light hit him for a few seconds. Um, and once again, he heard a voice coming from uh, the strange device that was located in the corner. Basically, it was just telling him to keep calm. Um, and then f- the egg-shaped machine that had come out in front of him opened up and outstepped a double of himself. Uh, the voice from this uh, tape recorder-like device then spoke to Durant and asked him to touch this double of himself. And upon doing so, he felt that the body was um, made of actual flesh. Um, and afterwards, uh, this other Durant uh, proceeded to pat um, the abductee on the back and said, in, in a voice identical to his, Keep calm. Wish me a good journey, for I do not intend to harm anybody. Uh, Then the double disappeared through the wall, and a large panel that resembled the uh, front of a TV set appeared in the area where this copy had passed. And through this uh, screen, Durant now watched his other self in his own home. Weird. Uh, Very weird. <laughs> yeah, again, it, it, again, I know we've, we've we've talked about it a couple times. This the the double thing reminds me of David Huggins because mm-hmm. you know, um, and it also reminds me of Men in Black because how often do you yeah. hear about oh, you know, they're they look like us, and, but they're they're there's something off about them. Yeah. Um, as uh, Durant watched his replica self interact with the uh the people around him he realized that even though this guy this this double looked like him it didn't behave like him it was uh much more gruff and unfamiliar with different things that to a normal person they'd be every day like uh he didn't know how finances worked uh he couldn't he, he didn't know how to write um like uh basically in during this time that the entity was around um Durant was watching through this screen um how the entity was gruff towards his sister and then um to the driver of uh Durant's family who owned a firm um and that the entity had actually uh was driven to the uh firm to visit some clients. Um, and during this trip, Durant watched basically how at one point an employee uh, was handing him uh, a particular thing involving the firm. And the uh, double asked this employee to write an invoice out for him, something that everyone who saw this knew that Durant knew how to do. So they were completely surprised by this. And that, um, as this being was inside the firm, Durant discovered that this double could pass through walls, even though that it was seemingly solid or flat and made of flesh. Um, at one point, this entity passed through a wall and ended up uh, scaring um, a man named Arnoboro. 
um, because he didn't realize that anyone was behind him when uh, when he was standing there. So, um, so this double basically is causing all sorts of havoc um, in Durant's life. Uh, and at that point, Durant was asked by a strange voice uh, that spoke into a room that um, to assist this other self by means of uh, a TV-like screen. Um, and upon basically helping uh, this entity, he realized that the effect of um, this was like he, he had the sensation, as it were, of looking through this replica's eyes. Um, at times, Durant felt that he was physically above the double, almost floating above it, almost angel-like, um, advising him how to act, uh, whereas other times he felt that he was actually inside the body. Um, this this consultation, however, um, for, from Durant basically would not be constant, as occasionally he would be, uh, he'd have the access to this double would be shut off. Um, on one occasion, the double walked off from Durant's house in the evening and did not return until the next morning. Um, on another occasion, the double were riding in the car, but the family driver forced the driver to pull over to the side of the road and then proceeded to get out of the car and entered the Quinta de Boa Vista forest. Um, Durant never discovered uh, what his double had done during these time frames for the most part. Um, and that during these time frames, uh, what he was able to discover later on upon asking people was that this version of himself was very focused on plants and nature and protecting, um, uh, different forms of flora. Uh, there was a time where it, uh, this double noticed a, uh, a bow that was broken, um, in a tree and proceeded to mend it. Um, other than that, there was times when the double almost behaved like a tourist, um, as it was, as occasionally when the screen would flicker on and Durant was able to see what the entity was doing. It was taking pictures of the Nitori bridge near Rio de Janeiro. Um, and it was using a camera similar to Durant's Kodak, but it, was not his and no one knows exactly how this double got that particular camera. Um, now during the time when the screen was off, um, during this abduction, Durant basically sat in the room, which had a bed, a chair, um, and a shelf that gave him some semblance of comfort, but obviously nothing, you know, hundred yeah. percent. Um, and during this time he, in the room, he felt neither tired nor hungry or thirsty. Uh, he would lie on the bed, fix the wall during the moments when he was bored. And, um, occasionally, um, when he was really bored, he, he, he desired something to read and, Next to the uh, bed, there was an shelf. There was a uh, a shelf that basically had like a uh, a red light around it, and he would watch occasionally as books and newspapers would appear 
um, on the shelf. And every time a source would come up, the red light would flash. Um, an interesting aspect to this was that one of the objects that popped up for him to read was a Spider-Man comic. Hot um, damn. They've got Spider-Man. But the best, but the best part about this was that when he later found out about the Spider-Man comic, he could not find it until much later. The Spider-Man comic had not hit the presses yet. Oh, so he had he had access to a Spider-Man comic. And I, I would love to find out what issue, because I probably have it, but but still. Um, right. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating that that's one of the things because everything else um, later on, it would seem um, because at one point he was really wanting company from his girlfriend mm. and the uh, double basically um, while at his home found a letter that his girlfriend had just sent to him because his girlfriend did not live in the same city and lived in uh, Bahia. And basically, uh, this she wrote him a letter and the double grabbed the letter and almost instantly upon touching it it popped up through the shelf um so he was able to read um durant was able to read the letter then from his girlfriend um durant eventually though got tired of reading stuff and uh began to ask uh questions from his captors like uh why do you want me and they would reply, we need to conclude some tests. We do not harm anybody. The less you say about this, the better. However, we should like to make it known that we are friendly and only wish to help. Um, Durant then asked, who are you and what is your world like? Um, they replied, we cannot tell you who we are and our world is very different from yours. Um, Durant then replied, you are asking me to help. How can I do so when you are invading our world? The voice then replied, no, we are not invaders. We work for the good of the human race itself. Uh, Durant then asks, what made you choose me? And the being replied, you are different from the others and have feelings similar to ours. Durant soon began to wonder how long he would spend in this room and asked, how will you nourish me? How shall I get food? And the being replied, you are not going to feel hungry here on this ship. Durant seeing this as the moment to ask possibly significant cosmic questions, um, asked, do you know about God, the existence of? And the entity <laughs> responded saying, clearly so, of course. He is everywhere. <laughs> Everybody knows him. Yeah. Oh, Milan. Um, it's it's <laughs> on the following day. Durant noticed that his watch had stopped working and asked the being why this was. The box replied, on this ship, nothing will work. Um, Durant then began to inquire about his double and asked, uh, what or who is this other that who has replaced me? And the being responded by saying, he is an image that can be touched. Inside him, there is one of our cells and a recording of your mind. Uh Durant then had spent a total of 24 hours in the strange room and finally returned home on February 28th at 730. Um, when Durant returned home, his watch returned to life 7.31 seconds after um, after he had arrived there. 
And Durant um, soon began telling his family about all that happened to him. While his family noticed that there was an attitude uh, change and his behavior was off, basically it kind of fell on deaf ears as no one really believed him. Um, Yet from them, he was able to learn some further things that the double had done in his absence such as when the double left during the night, um, he discovered that it took a taxi and on its way back to the, to his home, the being found a lady's purse. Uh, the being proceeded to, after checking the bag and finding her address to return the bag to her. Uh, Durant ended up checking to see if the double had actually done this and it, and he found that he did. Um, Interesting. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, it's not good Samaritan. The worst. Yeah, good yeah. Samaritan. Um, uh, Durant also found that the double had taken several things from his home, um, such as some of Durant's books on Brazilian history, science, geography, some newspapers, some flowers, a card, some photos of Rio de Janeiro, um, and some prospectus leaflets of Durant's family's firm. Um mm. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I mean, hey. Uh, and Durant was eventually interviewed by uh, Fernando Cleto Nunez Pereira um, and later by Irene Granchi on November 16, 1986. Um, and Durant was in his early 30s at that point. Uh, Durant, prior to uh, the interview, said that people will not believe my story, but I would like you to publish their statement. Um, that that being the entities, we are friends and only wish to help. And by the time Granchi interviewed um, Durant, Durant had been married and uh, became a successful businessman with his own firm, uh, which manufactured medical equipment. And he basically now kind of has wanted to forget about his abduction. Um, and that's the end of his story. But <laughs> there's so much to that that's similar to other cases just without the direct entity connection like um, right right this is this is basically freaky friday folks that's what it is it's freaky friday yeah Uh, oh so great My fourth story is the story of Antonio Bogato La Rubia. And mm-hmm. Antonio La Rubia was abducted on a Thursday, more specifically, Thursday, September 29th, 1977. He was 33 years old, a bus driver by trade, and he was abducted by some strange aliens. He left his home at 2.15 a.m. to wait for the bus, which would arrive 20 minutes later. He was essentially on the way to retrieve his own bus for his own shift. Quote, I get up every morning at 2 2 a.m., brush my teeth, clean up, and leave at about 2.15 or 2.20. On that Thursday morning, it must have been 2.20, for that is the hour that my watch stopped. I crossed over to the field near my house. The field is very large. Um, uh, And when I got to the corner... I stopped short, for there in the middle of it stood this huge thing, so large it went beyond the boundaries of the football field, which is more than 70 meters across. I had to believe. Uh, 
in flying saucers. But this was no, this was one, no doubt. It was shaped like a hat, a dull lead of a dull leaden color. End quote. At first sight, Antonio decided to run for it. The UFO sent forth a powerful beam of light that lit up the entire area and stopped him dead in his tracks. The bulb from the street lamp he was standing under grew intent. It grew in intensity. He was struck by a beam of light that turned the area blue, and three quote-unquote robots appeared on the ground beside him. They stood to his shoulder, putting them at around 1.4 meters or four and a half feet tall, though each of them had an antenna jutting out of the top of their heads, which extended above Antonio's head. Quote, Antonio took the opportunity to go on describing their appearance to me. Um, and the me in this case is Irene Gronchi herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he repeated what he had told me 10 days ago, that their heads were shaped like American footballs. And there was a band across the middle of this with what looked like a row of little mirrors or two shades, one a little darker than the other of blue. He said their bodies were stocky, the trunk broader than his own. He is of muscular but narrow build. They had appendages for arms, thicker than his own arms, which he compared to an elephant's trunk as they narrowed down to tips with no hands or fingers or just one. If you count the tapered off part as such, and it was as narrow as a normal finger. Their body was made of a rough substance forming scales. Asked whether this could be an armor clothing um, them, he said he did not think so, as their movements were free and easy, which would not have been the case if it were a covering. Their trunks were kind of rounded at the bottom, from which came out a single leg, end quote. These beings flanked him, one in front of the other, uh, one in front, one at the side, and another behind him. He tried to run, but the blue beam had power over him. Quote, he flung his arms around, but discovered he was as captive in what he called an invisible glass and had described in his former meeting with me as a redoma, a bell jar. Otherwise, he considered himself to be in a normal state, although very nervous. He could not move, though. End quote. The beings floated and looked and looked the same, though one of them carried what looked like a syringe. This particular being aimed aimed it toward Antonio, and it caused him to move toward the disc in the field. As he approached the UFO, he felt a tremor and suddenly found himself inside a white corridor that looked to be composed of aluminum. Quote, he was inside the ship and looked back down the corridor He saw the square lying beneath. Obviously, the UFO had lifted from the ground. The view he saw was recognizable. He said the vehicle must have been flying from south north. He said the walls were transparent from inside out, so he could look out from all sides. Suddenly, another bright blue beam of light became visible from above, and Antonio found himself inside a huge circular hall where a dozen robots... On, on one uh, on one side and another dozen on the other. They remained, they reminded him of kids in school the way that they were lined up. He struggled for a while to get out any words, but was finally able to shout, 
What do you want? Who are you? The beings all tumbled to the floor as if his words had killed them. The blinding beam of blue light appeared once more, which caused the beings to get up. Strangely, he could hear them all breathing. Antonio himself struggled for air. Quote, Antonio noticed that at the moment he had shouted, the beings had lifted their appendages to the tip of their antenna, holding them. This tip had a coffee spoon appearance. Antonio lifted the little coffee spoon he was using and said it was that shape, only duller looking, and the antenna came out from the side of the spoon. This tip rotated at an incredible speed all the time, so fast his eyes could not follow. He said that while in the UFO, at no time did he feel ill, he felt perfectly well, normal. After the light had come on again, he noticed there was a little piano-like affair standing in front of him. Otherwise, the great hall was empty. There was no furniture, no instruments, no panels of any kind to be seen anywhere. The piano-like affair was like a box about 15 to 17 centimeters, or five and a half to six and a half inches or so in width, standing on two poles so that it reached to the height of Antonio's chest. At the extremity of the box on each side, there were antennae jutting up and to one side, the keys that had reminded him of a piano. There was also something that looked like a tin on it, where the beings put some little objects that they took from their belts. These belts had syringe-like objects uh, on them, hanging from different sized hooks. The beings took these syringes off these off their belts and introduced them into the piano box. And each time they did, an image appeared on the wall of the UFO, showing various scenes like a slide projector. The sequence of pictures ran like this: one himself, bare, naked, lying on an invisible table swinging his arms around, his legs together, and two of the beings examining him with their little bluish lights coming from the syringe-like object, directing it at his chest, at his head, and another being examining his head with this blue light that had no beam, Antonio observed. It lighted everything blue, and even his hair was blue. When the scene was over, another being came over and introduced another thing, slide and the second picture appeared here he saw himself alone still naked third antonio saw himself all dressed wearing his shoes and with his carry-all for shopping as he usually does his teeth were chattering he looked nervous but no sound came from his lips his arms swinging without being able to leave he corrected himself saying no i wasn't swinging both my arms only one of them. The other was holding the bag. Fourth, the next picture showed a horse and cart, the horse drawing the cart over a dirt road. He did not recognize where that was. There appeared what must have been the cart man, ragged, a real peasant, wearing a straw hat, his feet naked, his shirt torn. Fifth, he now watched the picture of a light orangey ball, and himself standing beside it. Six, the ball appeared once more, this time bluish, a light blue, and one of the beings standing beside it. Seventh, a dog was shown, trying to get at one of those beings, 
Also shown in the picture, the dog was big and slobbering at the mouth, trying hard to get at the being, unable to reach it, and looked very angry. Then the dog gave out four or five barks. At this point, the dark, the the being started to melt from top to bottom like porridge. Antonio's voice took on an even more excited and puzzled tone as he told me that at that moment, one of the beings in the hall with him came off the row, moved forward, stood beside him, and pointed one of those apparatuses at the dog, and the dog turned blue and started to melt, exactly as the being had melted, and turned into porridge or jam, all of it. It was shocking to see that happen, said Antonio. He described the ray from the syringe as different to the ones uh, to the ones uh, seen in TV films, for it was, in fact, not a ray, but only a focus, a focused light on the dog. He thinks the dog must have died. Well, if he's turning into porridge, he had to have died. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eighth, a factory was seen, a factory of theirs, where the UFOs are manufactured. The scene was of can uh, of candid white and stretched along far out. So far, he could not see the end of it. There were three rows of them. The two of the the two to the right showed UFOs that were nearly ready, and the row to the left had flying saucers in the making at the skeletal stage. All three rows stretched out far out of sight. Everything was spotlessly white. There were millions of beings, robots. They were just moving around, but he noticed no tools. Ninth, this showed a train like the Japanese trains now running in Brazil, but older, something the worse for wear, windowless, but just like our trains and other details. And Antonio believes it was one of our trains and it was entering a tunnel and was lost to view. Tenth, this showed an avenue like Avenida Presidentia uh, Vargas, one of the busiest thoroughfares in Rio, and it was jammed with cars. It was so jammed the car stood still. Another image that he later recalled was of smoke coming out of his back, which he believed was linked to the illness he was suffering from after he exited the ship. From there, one of the beings moved to Antonio and drew blood from his middle finger. Quote, one of them came over to the center of the hall where he was standing, took one of those syringes from his belt, passed it over to his left appendage, where it started to rotate. Antonio says it spun so fast he could not follow it with his eyes. Then this thing was pointed at him, and his arm was pinned against his will, and the syringe was stuck into the middle finger of his right hand. He saw the syringe filling until it nearly overflowed. He was sure it must have been his own blood, for it was the only color he could he saw in the whole place. All else was blue or white, metal-like, and this was red. He could not see how it happened, for he had not felt the prick, and there was nothing to see after it was over. Then the being pointed at the picture on the wall and drew with it three circles, presumably with Antonio's own blood, and cut them through with an L-shaped mark. After the scene of the busy street was shown to him, Antonio was thrown out of the UFO. He doesn't know how it was done. He was just standing by the railway wondering where he was. 
Looking to the sky, he saw what he described as a huge balloon flying up into the sky. He watched it until it disappeared from view. Looking down at his watch, he noticed that it had stopped at 2.20 a.m. He asked a nearby man for the time, and he told him that it was 2.55. A full half hour missing. He waited for the 310 bus and rode it to work. He was nervous and ill the entire time. His vision faded at times, but he still worked two shifts, Thursday and Friday, before he became really ill. Mm. Bold, man. Bold. You're driving a bus and you can't even see. Um, Not good. Um, No, no. On Friday evening, he started to feel the burning sensation through his body. Rubbing alcohol helped ease the pain, but it was still throbbing. On Monday, he returned to the bus garage to tell them that he had to quit. He struggled to breathe. The burning and the itching were too much. He even stripped down at one point and had them pour water over his body because he was so hot. And when he walked, he felt odd as if he were floating. The nurse at the bus company offered him an injection to tranquilize him, but he refused, fearing that it would make it worse. An ambulance was then called, and he was taken to the nearby hospital, though they said nothing was wrong with him. Uh, He had quite an ordeal. He suffered a lot through uh, a a lot of different things, but that that is the story of Antonio LaRubia and his abduction. Oh, man. That's that's honestly one of the classics though like yeah when it, when it comes to when you really get out of like um the betty and barney hill stuff or um even flatwoods a little bit like the u.s stuff it, it's almost like um i know a lot of people they have like this can this idea of these are the big cases but there's almost like many subtle levels yeah uh, like of of um fame like uh the Venezuela hairy dwarves, I'd I'd throw up there with with this with this case. Like they're 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 yeah. well enough known, but they're but they're not. But this is just the entities that are seen too. Are they are very creepy looking? Um, oh. just like I don't know, robots with like tentacle like arms, just not like. Oh, like just... no thanks, no thanks. And then you know they're and then they got that um that pedestal like leg. Yeah, which is something that I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, the 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 um, those pig aliens from Hurrah, they had mm-hmm. like uh, they had like the the pedestal type yes type deal yeah. too. Um, but it's something that you know when you see that, I almost pictured the Pixar lamp how they move, but I I'm yes. sure that's not even how it is. It's right. Um, oh man, such a great case though. Yep. Dude, can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and oh, yeah. uh, telling you. all of these stories. Uh, if you want people to keep up with uh, what you got going on, uh, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, I mean, you can find me at the New World Explorer Society That's where I post up articles. Um, if you want more of like a direct communication with me, I also have an Instagram that um, that's and also on Facebook, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me there. Um, at, uh, for Instagram, that's at uh, Cole Herald Researcher. Um, I j- just gotten Twitter like a couple of days ago, <laughs> so um, uh, you can find me Cole Herald Research One um, there. And uh, yeah, just 
you, that's the best ways to get a hold of me. Uh, and you can find different things that I'm working on. So, yeah, and Cole's a definite good follow. Go give him a follow because he, you know, he finds all these great cases and uh, writes about them. And uh, the, the there's cases that you've probably never heard of before. So oh. definitely uh, go give him a follow. Um, Our Strange Skies is a proud member of Dubied Media. Uh, special thanks to Floats for the use of their theme song of their song UFO for our theme. Uh, go check out floats. Uh, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. Um, Spencer worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirts designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on board a UFO with some strange tentacle beings in gray. We trust. Yeah.